a lot of that early research was in the world of pain, starting at University of Washington, where patients going through wound debridement who had burns would put on a VR headset. And this innovative researcher named Hunter Hoffman realized that the pain is a processor and we're not very good at multiprocessing. So if you could effectively create so much cognitive load that you were focused on something interactive and engaging, it would reduce the sense of pain. Welcome to Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Burhovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode, and it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. Today, I speak with Josh Sackman, president and co-founder of Applied VR. In their own words, Applied VR and their virtual reality-based treatments represent a comprehensive approach to chronic pain that empowers patients with accessible digital tools self-managed in their own homes. But before we dive in, I first heard of Applied VR in 2017, and in 2018, they announced a partnership with Samsung, Travelers Insurance, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, and Bayer. I have run into Josh on occasion, but the first time we actually spoke was when we recorded this podcast. Josh brought clarity, energy, and passion to our conversation. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Josh. Josh, welcome to the DTX podcast. I've had my eyes on applied VR from the early days and my previous hats, so I'm happy to have you here. And for our listeners and our audience broadly, would love for you to introduce yourself, how you got to the digital therapeutics world, and don't forget about one little or big but interesting fact about yourself. Thanks for having me on, Eugene. I never really understood how growing up with chronic pain would shape my life and career path. But sure enough, as a kid growing up in LA, went to school at USC and thought the entertainment industry is probably the coolest job that you can get coming out of college. And so I went straight into the cool jobs at talent agencies and film production. And a fun fact is I actually started my marketing journey in social media marketing but this was before Facebook. So I was actually marketing on the MySpace platform for different entertainers. And after several jobs, they were really cool. But I was thinking back at all the doctors, nurses, physical therapists, and people who really helped me feel better as I was recovering from multiple procedures and hospitalizations and suffering a lot through my childhood. The work I was doing wasn't really making an impact in others. And I realized that was really important to me. So I took my marketing focus and I looked into spaces that could really create a positive impact in other people. And I was really fascinated in how technology could provide tools, better access to information, and communities to bring people together around behavior change. I focused on weight loss and fitness and built some really interesting tools that help people hold themselves accountable to their goals, stick with their weight loss goals, track their progress, and connect with others going through the same thing. And so throughout my career, starting in marketing that evolved into product management, managing some interesting technologies. And when I came across virtual reality in 2014, and I was the CEO of a small fitness company at that time, the first time I put on a VR headset, we used to give this people an experience called the ledge, which is we bring you up 500 feet up the side of a virtual building, and we ask you to take a step off. And as rational human beings, there should be nothing that stops you from taking a step off a large virtual building. But VR creates a sense of presence, this feeling that you're actually somewhere else. And it creates a deep, non-conscious and emotional connection. I've done that one. It's scary. Yeah. And I was terrified. 
And this is someone who climbed mountains and did crazy things and still my palms were sweating and I really had to rationalize where I was and that I'd be okay. And when I had that first experience, I realized VR was something fundamentally different than other types of technologies. And as I was learning more about it, I was shocked that there were 20 plus years of academic research from great places like University of Washington and USC and UC Santa Barbara and all these prominent research labs that had been studying how VR could create positive behavior change in areas of addiction medicine and pain, anxiety, PTSD, phobias, and military had used it for decades at this time. And so the question that came up as someone who doesn't come from healthcare was, if this is so powerful, why didn't I know about this? Why doesn't this exist in the real world? And my first lesson in medicine was a lot of great innovation is born in the laboratory and then dies there because it's not productized for scale. There isn't a clear operation model, business model, doesn't have the capital and team to bring it out there. And so that was the initial thesis of applied VR. What if we took all these great design principles and fundamental research outside the lab and translated it into real world products that can transform behavior? In the early stage, we're very much a solution looking for a problem. And I'm happy to kind of take you down the path from there. Again, I keep saying this on almost every episode, a lot of the entrepreneurs that are in the health and care space, we all start with kind of our own challenges or family challenges or loved ones. So it's always instigated in what we do. If I rewind back, and again, my recollection is that you guys started almost like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like App Store for Health VR back in the early days. You've obviously, A, so please correct me if I'm wrong there, but also how did you evolve into pain management as a market? So take us through a little bit of that journey and a couple of pivots through there or iterations. Sometimes when you're super early in innovation, you have to meet the market where it is at the stage where the technology is most ready. And so when we're first starting out in 2015, there was a lot of research in pain management and distraction and relaxation, and basically how VR, leveraging that sense of presence, could take someone out of whatever painful or stressful reality and create a better virtual reality that can help ease them through some really stressful and painful moments. And a lot of that early research was in the world of pain, starting at University of Washington, where patients going through wound debridement who had burns would put on a VR headset, and this innovative researcher named Hunter Hoffman realized that the pain is a processor and we're not very good at multiprocessing. So if you could effectively create so much cognitive load that you were focused on something interactive and engaging, it would reduce the sense of pain. And similar studies were run in areas of anxiety. And so when we first met Dr. Brennan Spiegel at Cedar sinai and Dr. Jeff Gold at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, we talked about how some of these principles could benefit their patients. And Brennan as someone who's a GI doctor, but really involved on the floor with the hospitalists, really assessing the needs of the patients. He identified patients who are hospitalized often have a lot of uncontrolled pain and anxiety. And so in the early stages, before we even really developed a product, the first question is, would patients even put on a VR headset? Could you get a clinician, a doctor, a nurse to actually willingly introduce this to a patient? without feeling foolish or embarrassed about what they're offering to the patient. And so we ran a feasibility study in 2015 that took simple content that was available commercially, helicopter tour over Iceland and watching a virtual Cirque du Soleil show. And we just put on a patient to understand what's their experience. Do they tolerate the headset? 
Does it make them motion sick? Do they find it pleasant? Does it offer any signals of therapeutic benefit? And we saw some really positive signals. And so then we started developing some specific content that could address the pain and could address the anxiety. And we built essentially a very curated app store, as you described, a therapeutic Netflix, where there was a selection of different modules, some developed in-house and some licensed and brought in, but curated to make sure they're appropriate for patients. And we ran some early feasibility uh, clinical trials to understand, could this actually reduce pain and improve patient experience and all these other outcomes? And so over the course of the first couple of years, we ended up building this kind of therapeutic Netflix environment that got deployed to over 200 hospitals. And what we learned was, one, how to operationalize VR in some really complex settings. In Children's Hospital Los Angeles, we're working with their phlebotomy lab, which is incredibly high throughput, very little tolerance for waste. It's all about efficiency, but also improving the experience of a patient who's a child in their family who's really nervous or scared to get a needle in their arm. And we worked in the cath lab and labor and delivery and the inpatient environment and orthopedic outpatient environment. And what we're really doing is collecting a lot of data through some investigator-initiated trials, but also developing operational know-how and product development know-how. And so around 2018, and part of the reason of that is the technology was really cumbersome to use. Even though it was untethered from a computer, we're using the Samsung Gear, which was a cell phone that plugged into a little visor, but patients weren't really capable of using that on their own. Every time we tried testing it at home environment, it was really clunky and only worked about 50% of the time. So we found the hospital was a perfect ground to start testing because there were child life specialists and nurses and other care providers who would be able to assist the patient, which would take the operational burden off the patient and put it in very forward-looking staff who were bought into innovation. But in 2018, as the form factor improved, we started looking at how this could be brought into the home. And ultimately, we saw where VR could really take a place in mainstream medicine and could be part of the standard of care pain management was going through the FDA pathway. So could we doctor prescribed and pay or reimbursed? And that was really the turning point for the next chapter of Applied VR. Before we get to product details, evidence generation, and all those fun questions, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening to this, but also lots of investors. And I always get asked, well, can you explicitly ask the companies that have been there already around your funding journey? And what's interesting to the entrepreneurs that are listening, what were some of the key milestones sort of attached to some of them? And they don't have to coincide, but it'd just be interesting to listen or hear from that perspective. So at the highest level, the pre-seed was really demonstrating the feasibility that VR had some type of real-world application beyond just the, the niche and hype and excitement of VR, that it could actually be used to solve real-world problems. That funding and early development work got us into the Techstars program. That was the first iteration of Techstars Healthcare. We're working with Cedar sinai and that really was a fantastic opportunity to really understand the business model, how to productize our offering and really figure out the operational workflow of VR in those complex healthcare settings. And through our seed funding, where we worked with a combination of angel investors and some early stage venture capital investors, we built out that early therapeutic Netflix type environment that deployed into hospitals all around the country. And around 2018, when we saw the technology being ready to move into the home and developing really a robust chronic pain management program that we could actually take through FDA get reimbursement, establishing the guidelines, we raised our Series A financing. 
that was led by a strategic investor as well as venture capital. And that really funded the development of the first version of our later-to-be FDA-authorized product, where we built at-home chronic pain management program, and we ran clinical trials that ultimately served to secure our breakthrough designation. Then, after getting our breakthrough designation and gearing up to run our pivotal trial and really fleshing out the design and development of our broader chronic pain management program, we raised our Series B which was used to finalize our FDA authorization and to start the process towards building all the infrastructure for commercialization. And so now we're late in our Series B process. We have a FDA-authorized product indicated for chronic low back pain. We have our pivotal trial as well as a health economic outcome research trial, which is reading out now with over a 1,000 patients. And we have our first contract, which is with the VA health system, And we're well into pilots negotiation with some of the private payers to build out a reimbursement foundation to start bring access for our product to patients all over the country. Overnight success over, what, eight years, right? And still building. Exactly. I appreciate that. And maybe let's just jump back. Everybody knows VR. I think most people know how to navigate or many do. Let's step back from assuming that this is prescription now. Walk us through that patient experience maybe pick chronic back pain. And what does the person feel? What are they doing on a daily basis? What's the kind of outcomes for lack of a better term expected? So walk us through a day in life of a patient using your product. Sure. And the first rule of VR is if VR isn't absolutely needed, don't use it. It adds a lot of complexity and friction compared to just taking a device out of your pocket that you're already trained to use. But what VR does well it does better than any other type of technology. And when dealing with complex patients, ultimately what we're doing with virtual reality is we're not just providing distraction, and VR is really good at distraction, but we're developing skills, skills that can be acquired and transferred. So when the VR headset comes off, you're better equipped to be able to regulate your nervous system, have psychological coping skills, and prepare to deal with the adversity that your chronic condition provides. And because chronic pain skews older, the other consideration is it just needs to work. We ship a headset that's pre-configured, a patient removes it from the box, they power it on, they put it on their head, and it's ready to use. There's zero configuration of setup, requires zero controllers. Simply by moving the head around, which is using gaze, they can launch a module, increase the volume, and very basic controls. The experience is 56 days. On average, session is about six minutes. It's a commitment in that we're asking you to do some little homework every day, but six minutes isn't a lot of commitment to ask a patient to do. And it consists of five different types of content experiences. And we developed this program with a world-renowned pain psychologist named Dr. Beth Darnall out of Stanford, who's been developing self-regulatory programs in cognitive behavioral therapy for her entire multi-decade career. And so our idea is VR is really good at delivering experiential learning and training, but everything that we're doing in VR could be done outside of VR. If you were to see a cognitive behavioral therapist and a biofeedback practitioner and a mindfulness practitioner for MBSR and all these different specialists, you could acquire all these same skills, but it requires a trained human that's covered on your insurance plan with access and availability and getting over potentially stigmas that you may have about seeing counseling for your chronic condition. 
And so we want to integrate all these different evidence-based principles and make it available on demand for a patient that could be done in the privacy of their own home, in their own comfort, and delivered in a more engaging and effective way. And so it's rooted in diaphragmatic breathing and to bring to life what an experience looks like. As you're exhaling, we capture your breath in VR. And so as you exhale, you see your breath particles. And as they go into the environment, as you slow down your breathing, you make a tree grow, then flowers blossom, and you transform the scene. And if you're breathing too fast, you get some verbal feedback to slow down your breathing. And so we're reinforcing the desired behavior through a very visual gratifying way where every time you breathe the right way, you're actually changing the scene around. And then there's pain neuroscience education where you travel in the body and you can actually understand what's happening in the nervous system. And while we think pain exists in our back, the reality is no matter where the pain happens in your musculoskeletal system, it all ends up back in the brain through the central nervous system. And so learning to regulate your, your stress and pain response uh, can have really remarkable impact. But a lot of patients don't understand, so we take them into their nervous systems so they could better understand. And then there's modules in relaxation, interoception, and mindfulness, and distraction-based games. And it's woven into eight-week curriculum with weekly clinical themes. So at the end of eight weeks, patients are prepared to be able to deal with their pain with little or no access to our technology anymore. And our clinical studies actually show that two years later, a significant amount of patients are retaining clinically meaningful benefits off a single course of treatment over two months. Fascinating. And I always keep referring to dosage. So your dosage is eight weeks. Do you have patients that want to get another dose of it? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. And in our recent study, which recruited over a thousand patients, we're starting to study the impact of if patients keep the headset longer, um, what's the impact? We do know from our published research that about two-thirds of patients, about 66% or 65%, reach the clinically meaningful threshold for pain reduction, meaning they're reducing their pain at least 30% over those eight weeks, which is a pretty significant amount of patients. But at six months post-treatment, that drops a bit. I think that drops to about half or a third, somewhere in that 40% range, six months after returning the device or maintaining that threshold which leaves a lot of opportunity, I think, to reinforce those benefits through a booster program or keeping the headset longer or reinforcing the skills through other type of technology. While we'd like to say a single course of treatment can cure pain, that's just not realistic. We are one tool in the toolkit that can significantly teach skills in a way that leads to lasting change. But that change when you have a chronic illness and that illness may be prevalent throughout your entire life It's all about teaching skills and providing ongoing tools to help patients manage that pain. And we think we can play a significant role, but we're likely not the only tool. And it's very possible patients need more than one course of treatment. You know the saying, mind over matter, right? And I know you alluded to some of the signs earlier. And maybe if we can peel the onion just one level deeper, not too deep, the quote-unquote original hypothesis and the studies that you referenced, like what actually happens when you're doing this in your brain a bit? And then how does that tie to your evidence generation? And we'll get into the FDA stuff a bit later, but the scientific knowledge behind it and your evidence generation through it. As we were trying to work with Dr. Darnell at Stanford, understand what was working in her domain, which were self-management programs for chronic pain that would either through single course classroom training, digital applications, teleteaching through telemedicine, other platforms help patients acquire skills. 
And so for us, we took a look at what skills ultimately we'd want patients to acquire and which were best suited to be delivered through our modality of virtual reality. And in its essence, there are really two things that we think are leading to the benefit of patients. Uh, first is in learning self-regulatory skills. So patients often, as Dr. Darnell states, their harm alarm is broken. While they might not have any tissue damage or bodily harm, they still have their nervous system firing to the brain saying, I'm in pain. And all the stress, all the catastrophizing, all the worrying, and all those things that come with having a complex condition fuels that pain response. And teaching patients to move from that fight or flight sympathetic nervous system to that parasympathetic control where they can relax their body, they can learn to respond to stress, they can calm down that harm alarm that's overly active. That's a really key role and why we focus on interoception and relaxation and mindfulness and breathing. And the second is in psychological coping skills. What happens when you have to cope with your reality, which may be different post-chronic pain than it was before? How do you respond to your catastrophizing and that fear that your pain is going to be disruptive to your life? How do your thoughts and feelings interfere with the valued life that you want to live? And so our program uses a combination of self-regulatory skill training and developing psychological coping skills to help patients when the headset comes off, live a higher quality of life with less pain. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Josh Sackman, president and co-founder of Applied VR. Let's talk about FDA and the FDA approval process and the evidence generation tied to this. Um, and then as a follow-on to that, I'd love thoughts and for the entrepreneurs that are going through this journey or planning to go through this journey, if there's something you would do different in that FDA approval process. Sure, I'll actually start with that piece. FDA, I think, is often seen as a gatekeeper, an organization that wants to prevent innovation from the market and create barriers for companies. And the opposite is actually true. We found the FDA to be very collaborative and enabling to companies. Ultimately, FDA wants to make sure that how you market and bring your product to market is safe and effective and ultimately ethical. And so for a lot of digital health, it really is about the claims that you want to make. And in the early stages, we had some really great research led by Cedars-Sinai and Children's Hospital Los Angeles and Geisinger and Cleveland Clinic. And as data was being produced as a wellness company, meaning a company that hasn't gone through a 510K or de novo pathway at the FDA, there's really limitations in how you could use your data to market your business. And so for us, because we had such strong signals of data we felt really strong that we could run clinical trials to support the claims that we wanted to make around reducing pain intensity, reducing pain interference. And we had enough signals through early feasibility research that we thought was worth the investment. And it is an investment. It takes time and money to go through that process. But after conducting pre-submission meetings to get feedback from FDA around our clinical trial design and endpoints, we even discussed things about what does a placebo control look like? for a technology like virtual reality. And so we ultimately had to develop a sham, which accounted for the ritual of putting on a headset, which accounted for the inherent benefits of if you simply blindfolded and earmuffed a person away from their daily chaos 
and put them in some type of peaceful moment where they're disconnected from their physical world, they'll probably get some benefits of using any VR experience. And so we had to account for that. And so we developed a sham-controlled, randomized controlled trial with 188 participants who were randomized between that sham group, which put on a headset, but instead of going through reliever with active treatment, they saw essentially National Geographic content. So a fox grazing a prairie, an eagle building a nest, very gentle, innocuous music in the background, but enough to keep them engaged for eight weeks and using the product every day, which they did. And then the other group used our reliever program. And over eight weeks of treatment, we tracked patient-reported outcomes with pain and pain interference being the two primary outcomes and a whole slew of other types of endpoints that we could analyze and further stratify. And over eight weeks, that we found an average pain reduction of 42% with our reliever group and 49 to 57% improvements with the various pain interference metrics. And all of those were clinically meaningful and statistically significant compared to that sham control. And so we packaged that up. And because we have a physical device, it's not just about the content, but it's about the ecosystem of how you're delivering that content. And we actually went through the SIMD process, meaning software and a medical device, meaning we had to conduct all the basic safety and electrical testing on the actual physical hardware itself. And so we partnered with the manufacturer Pico to bundle this up. And part of where we thought this was important is because this is going into the home, and patients could have pacemakers. They have pre-existing healthcare conditions. They may have other medical devices. We thought it was really important to make sure that this is safe and compatible with other type of electronics and wasn't creating electrical interference or issues because this was being self-administered without the direct supervision of a doctor when it was being used in the home. And what this also opened up, as we'll talk about in a few moments, is because this is a closed ecosystem of a single purpose device, this also fits the definition of durable medical equipment. And that provides an existing pathway for medical devices that have hardware components that purely app-based digital therapeutics don't have access to. And so we were thinking not just about the regulatory pathway, but the reimbursement pathway. And so we got breakthrough designation. We took that designation and used it for a more interactive review process with FDA FDA was very collaborative, and ultimately, we secured our Class II de novo authorization in November 2021. You mentioned earlier in our conversation 200-plus hospitals to validate the solution, get the experts that are working with patients in hospital. That is very tough to scale as a business, and also your choice to go prescription digital therapeutic versus still doing all the studies that are necessary and RCTs, but going non-prescription. So I would love to understand the progression of your channel strategy as it's tied to your decision to go prescription and why. Absolutely. In the early stages of the business, before the hardware could be sent into the home, we realized we needed that infrastructure with staff support to be able to actually deploy virtual reality. And so sometimes in the early stages of business, you do things that aren't scalable in order to find your future ways to scale. So working with hospitals was really important for our first several years of the business. In fact, that developed so much of the evidence, so much of the know-how, and so many of the champions that we still leverage today. But ultimately, we saw the vision being more of an outpatient model where we work with pain specialists and orthopedists and primary care physicians and others to prescribe and deploy the devices in the home, which is our model now. 
So we moved away from the hospital side of things starting in 2018, really culminating that chapter as we're getting our FDA authorization. And now we have a model that's more akin to other types of at-home medical devices like a CPAP machine. So we work with mainly specialists. Doctors have been very supportive and interested. There are a lot of societal tailwinds that a lot of what was being done for pain medicine was largely pharma-based and interventional-based. And there's just been a lot of limitations, both in patients' access to physical facilities because of the pandemic, as well as a lot of political, societal, and other types of pressures to delay more risky medications and procedures to later in the care. And things like cognitive behavioral therapy have been recommended as a first-line treatment, but there just aren't enough cognitive behavioral therapists to meet all the needs of the patients. There's about 100 million chronic pain sufferers in the U.S., and there aren't enough cognitive behavioral therapists and other specialist providers to be able to provide treatment. And so physicians have been very receptive to be able to offer reliever to be able to provide that type of psychological treatment to patients without having to refer out or if there isn't a specialist to refer out to in their neighborhood. And so we've been working with those, but ultimately the customer, the payer, are the insurance companies. And so the patient's the user, and we had to create a really excellent experience that's evidence-based and easy to use and engaging. We had to make sure a solution fits easily into the workflow and addresses the unmet needs of the physicians. And then the third leg of that stool is on the payer side, which is we need to make sure that what we're offering has the right ROI and value proposition. And so we've been working really closely with the payers to really understand the impact, not just from a clinical perspective, but how this offsets healthcare resource utilization, how this impacts costs, and how this really addresses unmet needs from a payer perspective. And so we've been working closely with all those stakeholders, but ultimately this is at-home, doctor-prescribed, payer-reimbursed model, and the VA is the first health system to cover us, and we're working very closely with a number of other leading payers through pilots and contract negotiations right now to expand the offering in other markets. Can you actually talk a little bit deeper on the VA and what you guys are trying to accomplish? It's a great, great, great organization. I know they're leading a lot of the efforts. In our case, with health coaching, they were the first sort of to adopt and start studying from a testing perspective. Maybe dive a little bit deeper on what you guys are trying to accomplish there. So the VA, which I don't think many people realize how innovative the VA health system is, they've been using virtual reality technology since the late 80s for applications like PTSD treatment. Skip Rizzo at USC has been building virtually rock and other simulations to help with recovery. Soldiers are coming back to be able to deal with stress inoculation, exposure therapy for soldiers, as well as a lot of other use cases. In fact, there are over 120 VA sites that are using some form of VR application right now for some type of treatment. So they've been very progressive. Awareness is really high. And there's a lot of champions for VR technology. But there aren't a lot of FDA-authorized applications that are ready to deploy at scale. And so we've been working with Ann Bailey and the VHA Innovations Team, which is really the center for piloting and scouting new technologies for the VA for the last several years. And once we got our FDA authorization, Ann and her team put together proposals to get an innovation award and start piloting this in a number of real-world environments where this could actually be deployed and sent home with patients rather than being done in controlled labs, which is often where things start. 
And so because of that great work, we recently secured a contracting vehicle to be able to commercialize with the VA at scale. And the VA has three core initiatives, pain, mental health, and PTSD. And our solution really fits up the nexus of those three areas where we can create meaningful impact. And while we're starting in chronic low back pain, chronic low back pain often is accompanied by several other types of comorbidities that we can help as well. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hi, Josh. What is your vision for scale for virtual reality in healthcare? Thanks, Chandana. Right now, if a patient were to have three different virtual reality applications for different conditions, they'd likely have three different devices they had to use. That doesn't scale very well. Right now, the infrastructure for VR is very nascent. And in order for virtual reality to really be useful and to be able to scale, we see this vision for a VR pharmacy, that a single device meets the compliance and distribution needs, can integrate with EMRs, can integrate with different payers and physician groups, and ultimately serve as a hub for delivering virtual reality in a compliant way that can be available for prescription, can be available for over-the-counter use. But ultimately, there's a device planted in every home that can give a patient and their family access to a number of different applications. Second is virtual reality is a very isolating experience. And while it's very powerful, when you're in VR, you're in there pretty alone. We've done some experiments during the pandemic where we bring multiple patients together in a VR support group. And so different patients with chronic low back pain can sit in a circle together, even with a moderator, and talk about their experience, of what it's like to be isolated in the pandemic, what it's like to use virtual reality and how they're using it in their daily life. What are their other struggles that they're dealing with and get that peer support in a really engaging VR support environment? Because while you can look at someone on Zoom, you don't really feel the presence of someone else there. And that really is a power that could be leveraged for virtual reality, especially with patients experiencing isolation. And third and last is VR collects so much different data. And there'll be a point in time where there's a bunch of biosensors connected to the device. HP is already prototyping where you can collect heart rate and heart rate variability and galvanic skin response and eye tracking. And there'll be a moment where we can use that biofeedback to really personalize the experience of the patient, to maximize the benefits and create a precision VR experience to make sure the patients are getting a responsive environment that gives them what they need to maximize the chance that they're going to get the efficacy and benefits from the VR program. So I'm really excited for that to come. It probably won't come in the next few years. It'll probably take a decade or two, but we'll get there. Yeah, but I'm going to hop in here. I love your health metaverse vision. So I'll use the buzzword on that one. As we talked about, you guys are going through the FDA process and the regulators. I actually would love your advice to policymakers and regulators. What would be one thing that you would give advice on? We talked about the three Ps being patients, providers, and payers. But the fourth P of that policymaker is equally important. FDA has done a fantastic job of really creating clear guidelines and collaboration frameworks to establish that regulatory approval pathway for companies. But there are other policymakers, especially CMS, where there isn't as clear of a pathway. 
And I think there's a lot to learn because right now there's so many FDA cleared products on the market that simply don't have the mechanisms to get paid and distributed at scale. And so patients are left without these really valuable potential treatments because there isn't a really clear pathway, especially through Medicare. And at some point, there are some acts going through the House and Senate to establish new benefit categories. But I really see the benefit of developing collaborative frameworks and very clear payment pathways with CMS and other payers to create some predictability, standards, and process for companies to follow that would result in payment. And I think the DIGA in Europe has done a great job for modeling some of that framework. The US is a very different payment model and super fragmented, but I think there could be a lot learned from DIGA and bring some of those pathways and lessons to the US market. We started with you. Would love to end this episode with you. What gets you up in the morning? At the end of the day, I think back of what we've done over the last eight years. And if for whatever reason our business were to shut down, I'd be so proud of all the thousands of patients that we're able to impact. There's some really phenomenal stories, and we've captured some of those videos on our website and social media. And that's ultimately what gets me excited. I suffered from chronic pain. In many ways, I developed these tools to help a younger version of myself that wished as I was a kid in the hospital that I had access to virtual reality when I was going through moments of pain and anxiety and isolation. And I think there's so much promise and we're just getting started. Right now, digital technology can really change the paradigm of care and provide tools in a low risk, but really effective way that can transform lives over the next decade as this stuff gets paid for and more things get through regulatory approval. I'm really excited to see how the guidelines change and see more of this in our homes on a day-to-day basis. Amazing. Well, thank you for your time today and for our listeners. Maybe see you in the health metaverse. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.